0: Little honey bees flying around Little green peas from the ground Butter milk biscuits nice and brown Bring it to Tennessee farm table Butter beans peas, beets and chard Chickens running in the yard Catfish frying in that lard Bring it to Tennessee farm table Bring it to Tennessee Farm Table.
1: Welcome to the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast, a show that is dedicated to the people of the state of Tennessee who produce, prepare, and preserve food in agriculture, often with that mountain south Appalachian flair. And on occasion, I just might have a guest from our neighbors from surrounding states here in the southeast. This is your hostess and producer, Amy Campbell. The theme song that you just heard was sung and produced by East Tennessee's own Emmy Sunshine. She's from Madisonville, Tennessee. Today, we are setting the table with cast iron and cornbread, two staples of the Appalachian table. My guest is Dr. Katie Hoffman, who describes how she and her husband, Brett Tiller, created a business called Vintage Kitchen cast iron and collectibles, and how they rescue and rehab cast iron and resell their finds at cast iron pop-up clinics that they conduct in Tennessee and Virginia. These sessions they call cast iron clinics, and they'll also take in your old, sad, probably rusty and pitted heirloom cast iron, and they'll rehab it for you so it'll be brought back to its useful life once again. On the show today, Katie's also going to let us know how she makes her cornbread in a cast iron skillet and of course they grow their own corn. In Fred Sausman's potluck radio series, his subject today is gritty bread. Thank you so much for tuning in by radio or podcast. I truly appreciate your good company. Katie Hoffman and her husband Brett Tiller make their home in Sulphur Springs, Tennessee, which is in the northeast part of the state of Tennessee. And here's Katie talking about some of the things that they do with cast iron. What can people expect from a cast iron clinic?
2: When we sat down to design the first one, we wrote down all the questions that people asked us most often. And we decided that that would probably be a good place to start. And we noticed that there were an awful lot of people who also would say, well, I have my grandmother's pan, but it's got all this stuff on the outside of it, and I don't know how to clean it. So we thought, let's make a clinic instead of just a presentation so that people who just want to come ask questions can do that, but people who want to bring their cast iron can bring it, and we can tell them how to clean it up or how to maintain it, if that's their question, or whether it's worth anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So usually what we do is we spend about 10 minutes talking to people about how to choose the best piece of cast iron or pieces of cast iron for how they cook. Mm -hmm. And we talk about what kind of stove they have, because that makes a little bit of a difference, and we talk about what kind of foods they cook. And we go through a whole list of questions that help people understand what their probably looking for. Uh Um, And then the second part of it is about maintaining it once you have it. Because Mm. it's not that hard, but it is different from what a lot of people are used to in terms of taking care of, say, stainless steel or other kinds of pans. So um, we kind of feel like it's a good thing to give people the basics of how to maintain your cast iron. Because a lot of people are just real threatened by it. Mm -hmm. And it's easy if you just know. You know, so that's what we do. And then we leave lots of time for questions so that if people have particular questions, we try as hard as we can to get to everybody's questions. But because we can't always do that, we try to schedule our clinics at a space and in a time when there's time beforehand and there's time after so that if people still have questions they can talk to us one-on-one or if they brought a piece of cast iron and we haven't been able to talk about it in the context of the clinic we can talk to them about it individually and sometimes those pans end up going home with us to get the get the spa treatment i guess i'll call it <laughs> well
1: i guess so and so that's the service y'all do too if if people mm-hmm. have a have one, they just don't have time or expertise, so you can just fix them up.
2: Yeah, those people for who for some reason don't want to have a big tub of lye water sitting somewhere in their house or don't want to have a big garbage can with an electrolysis set up in it like we have three of in our garage. I keep telling Brett he's like the mad scientist, you know, all these things bubbling up in the in the basement but um you know people who don't want to go to that much trouble will ask us to do it for them and that wasn't something we anticipated doing but there was a demand for it and when we have the time we'll take in pans and get them back to people looking good kind of like pan rehab cast iron rehab
1: (laughs) it is (laughs) well good it is that's a real needed thing for all of us that have inherited our grandmothers or great grandmothers Mm -hmm. and there's crud all over the outside and mm-hmm. maybe they,
2: they don't have a good finish on them anymore. That's, that's so good. Or a little bit of light rust. Yes. People think rust is so terrible and sometimes it is, it'll pit the surface, but sometimes if it's just a little light coating, if there's just a little light coating of it, you can just get that right off and your panel look beautiful again. Good. And Brent knows how to do it. And he's also way more meticulous about things than I am, which is why I'm the mouth and he's the... He's the artisan. He's the one who brings them back to life.
1: What a good combo. Well, you and Brett being your husband. And the two of y'all make a dream team in terms of a lot of things. But also what we're talking about today is getting this cast
2: iron bought and fixed and clinicked. Well, that's part of the fun. I mean, we love going out and finding it. And finding some piece that needs a little love and taking it home, and it's just so satisfying. And the fact that we get to do it together yeah. is really great. You know, I mean, we get to do something we enjoy, and then other people get to benefit from it, too. So we're we're kind of excited that we ran up on this idea and, and ran with it, and that we get to spend time together doing something fun and something worthwhile. You
1: are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and we're visiting today with Dr. Katie Hoffman. She and her husband, Brett, make their home in Sulphur Springs, Tennessee, in the northeast part of the state of Tennessee. They rescue and rehab cast iron, reselling their finds at cast iron pop-up clinics, and they conduct these from time to time in Tennessee and Virginia. And they'll take in your old, sad, possibly rusty, heirloom cast iron, and they can rehab it for you and so it'll be brought back to its useful life once again and they are such neat people Katie used to teach English at Tusculum and she's a ballad singer and a writer and she's just a neat person and her husband Brad is really neat too so how about these people for some neat Tennessee neighbors This cast iron is just one part of what Katie and Brett do. They also grow their own corn, grind it, and cook it up in a cast iron skillet. Here's Katie talking about all that right here. Well, Katie, you just mentioned Brett, your husband, and you have told me before how much you think of his daddy, Neil. Yes. Can you describe him and his
2: corn and what all y'all do? (laughs) Sure. Neil is a character character. And it's pretty sad, and it's not a secret, that he's been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And so he's not able to do some of the things that he used to do. He's a lot quieter than he used to be. But I'm going to talk about him in the, in the past because the things that I'm going to tell you about are the things that I learned from him when I first uh, started dating Brett and, and visiting the Tiller farm. Neil is a character. Uh, he loves to tell a story. He's got very strong opinions. Um, He loves tradition. And, you know, he's a contractor, and I used to ask him why he was so committed to growing his own corn and grinding it into meal and saving a steer every year and killing it and butchering it himself, well, as a family. I said, you could afford to go to the store and buy your food, And he said yes but this is how my daddy did it and how my granddaddy did it and my mom and he said i love the tradition and he said and the store bought food just doesn't taste as good so he he was a really interesting character to me because i didn't grow up in that tradition but i sort of agreed with those values Mm -hmm. and so to use his own term i dragged out his tracks uh following him around and, and learning about these things And uh, one of the first things was the corn that he grows and that we grow now, uh, Boone County White, which is an heirloom corn that his family grew when he was growing up and ground into their cornmeal. Um, We grow the corn, and when you hear about the grain being as high as an elephant's eye, Boone County White fits the bill because the stalks are about 15 feet tall. Oh, man. They're so tall that you can't reach the ears without either a stepladder or just knocking down the stalks so you can pull the ears off. And uh, Neil would grow these big patches of Boone County White every year, and we'd go out and cut the stalks down and pull the ears off and shuck them and put them in the, the corn crib. And he still has a corn crib. And they would sit there drying out all winter. Um, Then we'd go in in the spring and nub the corn. Do you know what nubbing the corn is? I have an idea, but I want you to tell us. All right. You take an old cob and you look at the ear of corn that you've got in your hand. And if there are any little brown or rotty kernels in it, you take that cob and push them out so that all you have are the good kernels left on the ear of corn. And then you take it and throw it into a bucket next to you. And once you've nubbed all the corn, you've gotten all the rotten kernels or the spoiled kernels out of it. And it's dry, the kernels are real hard and and it can be kind of hard. Sometimes you have to get your pocket knife out and nub them too. But after you've got all your ears cleaned off and they're in five gallon buckets, you know, in the middle of a group of however many people are nubbing corn, um, as many as you can round up. And so you got your nubbed corn, five gallon buckets. And then in that same room where the corn crib is, there's a hand sheller, which is this tall, skinny kind of piece of equipment that um, has a hand crank on it. And one of you turns that crank as fast as you can, and the other person takes a bucket of the corn ears and you throw it pointy end first into the mouth of the corn sheller and it makes this enormous racket. And you put a bucket underneath the sheller because there's a chute that all the little loose kernels come rattling out of into the bucket and on the other end the naked corn cob gets spit out into a sack and that gets used for kindling later because you don't waste anything at the tiller house if you can help (laughs) it so then you have your buckets of kernels and you take them next door to his mill room He's got an old electric mill from, I think, from the 1930s that he found at an auction and it didn't run. And he took some chewing gum and masking tape and a couple paper clips and his um, hillbilly penchant for being able to fix anything. And he got it running. And um, they've used it for years to grind this meal. And if you look inside it, every year he takes them out, but they're two little millstones that look like. Real the big large ones that used to be in the mills
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, that ground corn like by a creek or whatever, and you can set it however you want oh. using those stones to get the right texture. And he likes his meal coarse, so that's what that's what we that's the meal that we that we use to make our cornbread. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't taste like any store bought cornmeal you ever had. Oh, and there's one rule that you have to keep in mind. And this comes straight from Neil Tiller. Yaller cornmeal is for critters. White cornmeal is for people. Now write that down and don't forget it.
1: Thank you for letting me know about Neil. He's an important man, and and I love how reverent you are about your uh, father-in-law. And I, I appreciate so much how you're preserving his ways.
2: Well, he and my mother-in-law have taught me a lot. And my my mother-in-law, Martha, passed away on Thanksgiving 2016. Um, But she's the person who taught me how to make butter. And she used to just shake her head at me and laugh and say, you know, I grew up a sharecropper's child. And the minute I didn't have to make butter anymore, I ran as fast as I could in the other direction. And she said, here you are, this professional woman, and you're asking me to help you learn to make it. But she, she did. She was, she, she was a lot quieter than Neil, but she was another person who um, carried on a lot of the traditions because it was important to him and also because it was important to her. And I brought you some butter.
1: You did not.
2: Thank you. It's Sayer butter. Oh, wonderful. It's For people who don't know what that is, it's sour butter. It's cultured butter because you have to let it culture before you churn it. But I brought you some sour butter. You sweet thing. Thank you. You're welcome. Not to mention
1: a bag full of peppers. Thank you, Katie. Are you kind enough to share your cornbread recipe with us?
2: Absolutely. Me? Because everybody needs to know how to make good cornbread. Yes, ma'am. What tillers call making cornbread the right way. Are you ready? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay. On an evening when you're making a big pot of soup beans and they're almost ready, you have to find your cornbread skillet. And it has to be a designated cornbread skillet. I found this out the hard way. That's another story. I once used the cornbread skillet for something else, and I never did it again. Now, in our house, that's a number five skillet. It's eight inches across, and it makes just enough cornbread for two people if you want to have some leftovers when you warm the beans up again, which, of course, you're going to do, right? So you pull a bag of cornmeal out of the freezer, and you move your oven rack up to the top level, okay? okay? Because if you put it on the bottom, the cornbread will sometimes burn because of the way you make it, because of the way the tillers make it and you preheat your oven to 475 degrees. And I have to say, even though I'm kind of kidding about it, it, it makes the best cornbread I've ever had. So you take that skillet and you put a big wad of bacon grease in the bottom of the skillet. You put it in the oven while it's preheating and you let that grease heat up until it's smoking. So it needs when you pull it out and you look at it, it needs to have little trails of smoke coming up off of it. And while you're heating it and getting it to that point, you mix up your batter, which is really easy. You take a cup and a half of cornmeal, and then you mix it with a teaspoon and a half of baking powder and a quarter teaspoon of baking soda, and no sugar, ever. Write that down. Don't forget it, no sugar. Now listen, if you put sugar in this cornmeal, bad things are gonna happen. I have heard from the tillers that if anybody comes within two feet, Of this cornmeal with sugar It spontaneously combusts Now I like you Amy Which is why I gave you the cornmeal And I don't want anything bad to happen to you And people would miss your sweet voice on the radio While you recovered from the explosion So please do not put sugar In this cornmeal While we're at it, no eggs either You don't need them, you promise? Oh yes, no eggs Well okay All right. So all you do is take these dry ingredients And take a whisk And combine them real well and then you get your buttermilk out. Now, if you don't make your own buttermilk, and we do, and I brought you some of that too. Oh my. You, you use your own buttermilk, and the baking soda helps take the edge off of it, because sometimes uh, homemade buttermilk has a bit more whang than what you buy at the store. <laughs> when I can't use my own buttermilk, I try to use like a really high quality one, like Cruise Farms or a whole buttermilk. Um, and you just mix enough into that cornmeal mixture to make a paste. Now, if you like it mushy, put a little more buttermilk in there. And if you like it dry, do it just so it comes together. And usually it takes a couple batches to kind of figure out where you like it. By this time, your grease should be good and hot hot enough to be smoking like I talked about so you pull the skillet out of the oven and you pour the batter in and it makes the most wonderful sound it sizzles and pops and that's how you know it's going to have that amazing gorgeous brown crust on the bottom Mm -hmm. which is my favorite part of the whole thing Mm -hmm. Um, and you just take a a wooden spoon and kind of level the batter out a little bit and put it back in the oven and watch it and it usually takes about 15 or 20 minutes and when the When it's brown around the edges and kind of getting golden toward the middle, that's when you pull it out. Um, That's how you make cornbread, what the tillers like to call the right way. Well, there's one other rule that Neil and Martha have taught me. If you grow something and you make something, you grow more than you need and you share it because it always tastes better if you share it with people you love. So here you go. Katie,
1: thank you. You're welcome. You are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table, and we're visiting today with Dr. Katie Hoffman. She and her husband, Brett Tiller, make their home in Sulphur Springs, Tennessee, created a business called Vintage Kitchen Cast Iron and Collectibles, where they go to all these sales and all this stuff and, and buy cast iron, which is in sad shape. They bring it home and rescue it and rehab it and resell it. I've placed links to Katie and Brett's home business and her cornbread recipe, some pictures of their pans, and the podcast of this show always at my website, TennesseeFarntable.com. And up next is Fred Sausman's potluck radio series on the topic of gritty bread. I haven't introduced Fred in a while, and if you're not familiar with him, Fred is a senior writer and associate professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and he's also the news director at WETS, located on the campus of East Tennessee State University. This is Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Saussman. It's one of those dishes that tastes much better than it sounds. It's called gritty bread, and it has a long history. Susan Shelton, originally of Elizabethton, Tennessee, says the exact origin of gritty bread is a mystery in her family. Her great-grandparents made it in the late 1800s in the Carter County, Tennessee community of Cove Creek near Roan Mountain.
3: The bread itself is ground fill corn mixed with a little baking soda and buttermilk until it made a thick batter poured into a pan that was preheated with lard and bacon grease. It doesn't rise, and so it's basically two crusts put together with a little gummy stuff in the middle.
1: And Susan Shelton says gritty bread doesn't require a fancy
3: type of corn at all. I think when it first started up in the mountains, what my mother always told me was that they didn't have the rosin ears like we have now. They didn't have. Everybody had the fill corn, and the people ate it, and the livestock ate it. Grandmother would cut the kernels off the corn, and we'd take them out, and Granddaddy would then put it in by the handful. He had a long green bench. You put the grinder on the end of the bench and straddle it and start the grinding and grind it into an oatmeal-like consistency. One of my jobs as I got older was running the batter from the backyard into the kitchen where it would be poured into the pans that came out of the oven sizzling hot with the bacon grease. bakes really fast because it's very thin. It was not only a meal, it was a celebration. It was a time when the whole family, extended if they were able, came back to, to Run Mountain to eat gritty bread because it only happened once a year when the field corn was available. And that was all we had on the table. There were no sides. It was a gritty bread meal.
1: For Potluck Radio, I'm Fred Saussman. This is Karen Schenkels, winner of the 2015 National Cornbread Festival Cook-Off, and you are listening to the Tennessee Farm Table. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Tennessee Farm Table podcast and broadcast. It has been an honor to have your good company. We always love to hear from you on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or through the website tennesseefarmtable.com. I'd sure love to hear from you and swap some recipes and stories. Big thanks to Emmy Sunshine of Madisonville, Tennessee for the musical arrangement and singing and recording of our theme song. For updated appearances, schedule, news, and her new recording, connect with Emmy Sunshine at the emmysunshine.com. We hope you have a good week and keep on digging. This has been a Campbell Creative Incorporated production.